Uh, that see that does that's going to bug me. That seems a little loud in the room. Uh, if you need to turn it up for the recording, by all means do. But maybe it's just my hearing. Uh, so we come to uh, Hebrews chapter three, and right there in the beginning, verse one, uh, it starts out with that word therefore. Well, you know, it is a good rule of thumb. It is a good practice when you're reading the word, when you're studying the word, when you find the therefore. I mean, it's cliche to say it, but you want to find out what the therefore is there for, okay? It, you know, it, it, you'll be completely out of context if you just start at three and say, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Therefore, what? Well, it really begins, it's, it's the entirety of Hebrews, and I'm not going to do that to us, but uh, most relevant, go back to chapter 2 at verse 10. It says, For it is fitting for him for whom all things have, uh, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering for both. And, and that perfect speaking of Jesus is not talking about Jesus being imperfect. It's the idea of completion. And the, the reason that the Holy Spirit here tells us that there was a completing of Jesus is really for our sake, in that he demonstrated, and, and the author of Hebrews talks about it right here, he demonstrated obedience. He was tested. So, so you can you know, get the uninformed spiritual way of thinking that says, well, yeah, I mean, Jesus didn't sin, but after all, he was perfect. Well, consider uh, that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Meaning he did not want to do what the Lord was asking him to do. Same with you and I day to day, right? We, we have our challenges and we want to sin. Uh, that's our will. And nevertheless, not my will be done, Heavenly Father, but your will be done as we take up our cross and we avoid those things. So Jesus was completed and became the captain of our salvation in that regard. Uh, talks about uh, you know the glory and praise to him and how he is you know uh, our high priest uh, and down in verse 17 uh, pertain you know uh, he might be a faithful and uh, merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God make propitiation for the sins of the people that the actual payment so through his obedience the payment was made. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, <clears throat> consider the apostle. Now we'll pause right there, right? Because we think of apostle like the disciples, the 12 apostles. Uh, the term means sent out one. Um, you can... Uh, look through particularly the book of John. Um, I believe there are some 47 occasions in the book of John alone where Jesus speaks of being sent by the Heavenly Father. So, so it isn't just, and, and, and therein is you know another hint, very strong hint, at the Trinity. It was the will of the Father that Jesus go, and he obediently came uh, to the earth to be the savior of humanity. So, so this idea of Jesus being an apostle is, you know, very prevalent in the scripture. It's something that uh, you know we definitely want to grab a hold of and understand about Jesus coming as one who was sent. So he's apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. A few things there. Um, Jesus being the high priest, we, we have the, the high priest in the order of Aaron uh, that, you know, termed the Aaronic uh, priesthood, uh, the, the tribe of Levi and the descendants of Aaron that were the high priests. Jesus now, the shift is, is going to happen in uh, the book of Hebrews. The author is going to concentrate on, 
in the coming chapters on this concept of the high priest. The Jewish people were very focused on the priesthood, and in particular on the high priest. So now the author is going to draw their attention over to, so he's just given us all this buildup and qualification, uh, right? Because all of the high priests previously were tempted in the same way they are tempted, but they all failed. They all had sin in their lives. That was actually incorporated into their priesthood. They had to offer sacrifice for their own sins. So now you come to Jesus and he doesn't have to perform daily, repetitive, ritualistic sacrifices because his one sacrifice covers all sins. Uh, every you know portion of humanity is cleansed by his blood and he becomes the high priest of a new order. And we're going to talk about the order of Melchizedek as we uh, move along here. But Jesus now, the author begins to establish as the high priest. So the Jews whose hearts have been completely trained to think of priesthood, temple, sacrifices, high priest, their focus is now being shifted over by the author to Jesus as the high priest of this new order, our confession. The term Christ, you know, the, the high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Um, it's become so common, so used, that often people almost think of it as like, you know, first, middle, and last name, you know, Lord Jesus Christ. You know, like that's on his license or something. And, and uh, really, uh, Lord, uh, Kyrios, Master, you know, the one who is ruler over all. You know, Jesus, compound word. Uh, Yahweh, God the Father, his name Jehovah, and salvation put together. Yahweh's salvation. Most literally, the uh, Greek uh, translated, you know, Hebrew name translated into uh, English would be Yeshua. So Yahweh's salvation, Christ anointed one. I had a discussion this morning with the guys and gals at CRD. Um, you listen to the pagan religions and they have this mindset like, um, you know, every religion has their Christ. You know, you'll, you'll hear things like, oh, well, you know, that's the Muslim Messiah, they'll say. And, and there's no such thing. They, they didn't have the term Christ in their religion. They didn't have the concept of Messiah, Savior of the world, in their religion. Christianity established that, became the most dominant religion in the world, and they begin to mimic uh, Christianity uh, to not only lend themselves whatever popularity they can, but also to devalue the legitimate. Uh, counterfeits always do that. And when people counterfeit money, it, it makes your money of less value. Um, Saddam Hussein actually went through the whole process of developing full printing press capability of, of not the uh, U.S. Treasury and Secret Service said that it wasn't even, you know, they were counterfeit, they were fake, they were made by him, but they were so accurate they weren't even counterfeits. He, he, had, he had the paper correct, he had the printing correct, he had every aspect of it. He was printing U.S. dollars. And uh, we arrive uh, just shortly after, uh, this is uh, in 91, in, in the first invasion, we arrive, and uh, shortly after they had been, they already printed millions of dollars in U.S. Uh, currency. You know, it, some of it had already gone into uh, play, but um, imagine if they were just able to do that and flood the world market with U.S. dollars. It, it, it dramatically diminishes the value. And this is what Satan always does. Take the genuine, imitate it. And as a result, you diminish the value of the legitimate. So um, the Christ, the anointed one, again, pointing back to the priesthood as Moses was given the orders by God to build the tabernacle, to uh, you know, establish the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense and the altar 
for sacrifices and all of the priestly garments and all of the articles when they were ready to worship, they brought Aaron out and they anointed him with oil. They poured oil right over his head. It ran down his beard over his whole garment. Very fragrant anointing oil that they had created according to the Lord's recipe that he had given uh, to Moses. The concept there, and I'm and I, I, not just chasing a rabbit trail, is that the fragrance of the priest would be very unique to the worship of God. God forbid that the nation of Israel should duplicate that fragrance. That was His incense was made the same way as his anointing oil, and no one was... There was actually a death penalty if you were caught trying to duplicate the uh, fragrance of the temple. Uh, you could be put to death according to Le Levitical law. Point being, God wants uh, all of that experience to be only associated with his worship. Okay? Um, my, my wife, uh, I'm not even going to tell you the name of it, my wife wears a perfume that um, is, uh, it was around uh, many years ago, sort of uh, lost its popularity. If you haven't silenced your phone... Um, sort of lost its popularity, um, which I was very grateful for. Um, and it's harder and harder to find as the years go by. But that's kind of cool because I, you know, I can I can find it, I can buy it, and uh, she really enjoys it. And that fragrance is associated with my wife. I, I don't, you know, have to, you know, be wandering around somewhere and, you know, have that waft by and think, you know, where is Lori? Uh, so it is. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, making an illustration that perhaps is, you know, sacrilegious or something. But the, the Lord had a fragrance that his priest was supposed to have, that his temple was supposed to have, that w the worship of the Lord. When you smelled that, you would automatically think of worship. And you know how fragrance does that. You know, you smell fresh baked bread and suddenly you're like eight years old, you know, just, you know, grandma's cookies or I don't know what the way fragrance affects us. The high priest anointed with the oil that the Lord had, uh, you know, derived, made uh, and, and given them. Jesus is our high priest anointed one. Uh, you know, I, I share many times, uh, saw years ago down in Bar Harbor, they had a sign up, you know, uh, uh, anointed Christ, anointed Buddha. You know, they're, they're making a presentation uh, that, that you know, there have been many Christs throughout history is their take on things. And nothing could be farther from the truth. There's only one Savior of the world. Okay, so, so this isn't me just trying to drag this out and exhaust the idea. When he says this, to the Hebrew readers who are struggling right now with Christianity. They've, they've come into the faith. They're being very heavily persecuted uh, for being believers. Their businesses are collapsing overnight. They're finding themselves you know, going from being the most wealthy people in the community to the most impoverished in a very short period of time. They're not allowed to go into the synagogues. They're being beaten and stoned and ridiculed and driven from their homeland. And, and here the author of Hebrews is saying, like, don't lose heart. You, you, your high priest is still intact. You're not being driven from your high priest, right? Because the Aaronic priesthood is not where your high priest is. You have Jesus. He is your Christ. He is your anointed one. He is the high priest whom, you know, your worship is supposed to be conducted towards and focused upon. You know, the high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, Yahweh's salvation, who was faithful to him, capital H, who appointed him. So that sent out one, that appointed one, as Moses also was faithful to in all his house. Now we're going to see some contrasts between Moses and Jesus. And that is, again, for the benefit of the Hebrew readers so that they would very much understand because Moses at this point in their minds is the end all. You know, as far as human being goes, nothing could be higher 
in the mind of the Jew than Moses. Uh, you know, and and in in this setting, the author is saying, you know, Jesus has eclipsed Moses, and he's going to expose why. So Moses also was faithful in all his house. Notice the capital H on his house. Okay, Moses was faithful in God's house. Okay, it's not Moses' house; it's God's house. The same as Jesus is faithful, Moses is faithful. For this one can be counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Speaking of Jesus, inasmuch as he who built the house has more more honor than the house. Moses Moses wasn't even the house. Moses worked in the house. And he didn't build the house. Who built the house? Jesus built the house. The builder of the house surely has to have more honor than the house. And the builder of the house surely has to have more honor than the servant who works in the house of the one who built it. You know, the, so for, for the Hebrew person reading this, this is like setting in order where their veneration should be. Well, you know who it is that they uh, should be honoring uh, as the most chief component in in their religion. So he's counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he built the house, has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Wow! Look, you 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 have some very direct statements about Jesus being God, but then you have some other statements that, you know, are the glue between these things that give you the same understanding. You know, hear, hear what was just said, every house that is built by someone, but he who builds all things is God. We were just told that Jesus is the builder of this house. So, so he who builds all things is God. So, so you know, you you run into anyone that that wants to re- look. It's one thing if the, the ungodly people don't understand Jesus is God, but anyone that professes to be a follower of God, professes to be a believer, who then insists Jesus is something less than God, isn't looking at the Word of God. You know, you, know, you want to say that's your opinion? I guess we could have a discussion. Let, let's go over all the details. That we know, but if if you say that the Bible does not teach that Jesus is God, uh, you're ignoring a tremendous amount of the Word of God. You're you're you're, you're willfully throwing a tremendous amount of the Word of God out. So here we just told Jesus built this house, and then we are told He who built all things is God. Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony to those uh, things which would be spoken afterwards. So, you know, certainly, you know, the, the degree of honor that you place upon Moses is appropriate. He, he, you know, all of his servitude would demand that you honor him and you revere him the way that you do. That's good, right, and proper is what the author is saying here. But there's one who exceeds all of that, who's beyond that. See, in their mind, Moses has been the outer limit. That's just, I mean, nothing could be more holy, you know, from an earthly point of view than Moses. And here the author is saying, well, you know, perhaps you're right, as far as an earthly point of view. But we're talking about things that exceed that, that are beyond that as far as their holiness goes. He was, you know, faithful, uh, you know, uh, as, as in this house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards, right? Well, the very first miracle Jesus uh, uh, performs, that changing water to wine, is a symbol of this very thing right here. And it's supposed to be, it was orchestrated that way, it was supposed to be to teach the Jews, right? Because they've drunk of the wine that was set out by the master of the feast. And when that's all gone, Jesus creates wine, gives it to them, and it's superior. And the statement is made, right, that normally 
they hand out the best wine in the beginning when everybody is well drunk. Then they hand out the cheap wine at the end. But you have saved the best for last. Uh, the idea that Moses had a certain capability and a certain satisfaction and fulfillment. But when Jesus has come, he eclipses that. He supersedes that. He is superior to the inferior, which came first. Generally speaking, you know, that's, that's the way things go, right? You know, the superior arrives after. The inferior comes first. The superior comes later. In this you know, mind frame, they have it that Moses is the end all of their religion. And what they're being taught through Jesus by the author of Hebrews now is that Jesus is superior to Moses. All his house as a servant for testimony of the things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now listen, um, i got to be careful about how I say this because I don't want to mislead us in our thinking, okay? Um, certainly if you were to renounce your faith and walk away from the Lord, there would be eternal consequences to that. What the author of Hebrews is pointing to here is departing from Jesus in order to return to the Jewish law. Okay? Uh, how, how do we make application as modern Christians? If you, in your Christian faith, rely upon things in a legalistic way, as though it were the source of your salvation, rather than the grace of and mercy of God, then you're doing a similar thing. You're neglecting the grace that Jesus Christ has bestowed upon you and 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 wa essentially walking away from the faith. So consider how this might have an application to you. Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, uh, today, if you will hear his voice. So there's going to be several um, times here in the next few verses where Psalm 95 is referenced about this today. So it, it's mostly coming from that same context of what the psalmist is saying, uh, Psalm 95, 7 and surrounding verses, if you want to. Take an opportunity to look, look at that. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. There's certainly a few ways uh, to look at this idea of the rebellion that took place more than anything. It is the fact that God led them to the promised land. They sent 12 spies over. They come back, 10 of them give very negative report, right? It's, it's a mixed report, isn't it? Uh, oh, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. There's great abundance. You wouldn't believe. Look at the size of these grapes uh, that we uh, brought back. And then simultaneously, it's a treacherous land. It eats up the people. There are giants over there. They're going to kill us all. We can't possibly have victory. And that negativity spreads like wildfire through the millions of people of Israel until they all lose heart and they're grumbling against Moses and, it's God, and against God and they're refusing to go into the promised land. The rebellion is not entering into the victorious life of the people who are fulfilling God's promises in their lives. That, that's the summary of it. You know, the old Christian spirituals that talk about crossing over the Jordan as though it were dying and going to heaven is a completely inappropriate application of that spiritual picture. It is 
Uh, it's a, in fact, most accurately, a symbol of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and entering into the victorious Christian life. And, and they come to the border of that and give up hope and quit. And, you know, it's, it's not the, the illustration is pretty thin as far as being it because they wander around in the wilderness of sin until all of their flesh has died. I mean, do we do we even have to imagine what, uh, you know, the, the illustration was there? The Lord was trying to relay to us. We need to cross over in the spirit, right? Where New Testament tells us that that when they crossed the Red Sea, all of them were baptized in Moses. Well, if crossing the Red Sea is a symbol of baptism, when they crossed the Jordan River, what is that? And, there, and there's some interesting things about this, you guys, right? And because... Uh, stagnated water, or I should rather say still water, right, is not a picture of the Holy Spirit. Rivers, moving, flowing water, right? You, you heard Jesus say, anyone who thirsts, let him come unto me. I'll give him living water, you know, as such it'll flow out of him like a raging torrent, you know, and be able to quench others. The living water, the moving water. Red Sea, Still water, uh, you know, the idea of death, uh, living water flowing uh, a river. That's the Jordan that they cross life in the spirit. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. Uh, we need the Holy Spirit to experience uh, the victory uh, that, that Christ has called us to. I, I think that uh, one of the most effective uh, workings of uh, the uh, of, of our enemy, of Satan, has uh, been to cause a portion of Christianity to so misbehave when it comes to the use and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and as such, much of the church acts like, I don't want anything to do with that. I've, I've, you know, I've been to a Pentecostal church and they were all rolling around on the floor and I, I'm no thanks, is... is you know, what they're being, you know, taught indirectly from that. Um, nowhere in the scripture is a child of God knocked to the ground by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a couple of occasions where people are knocked to the ground by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's so interesting because they are murderers on their way to murder. When they're knocked to the ground by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? A couple examples, Balaam, right? And, and how about Saul of Tarsus, okay? The power of the Holy Spirit bowling people over are those that are living most in rebellion to the Holy Spirit and to God. You know, slain in the Spirit, not a term in the Scripture, not spoken of in the scripture. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. Very specifically tells us if in the congregation of the church you're going to use the gifts of the Spirit, then they need to be used in these ways. And he gives very specific outlines. You're going to speak in tongues? There has to be two things happening. One or two people speaking in tongues. No more than that. And if they speak in tongues, there must be interpretation. And here's something, saints, church, Calvary Chapel down east. The way that's written in the Greek language says if you come together and someone speaks in tongues and there is no interpretation of tongues, then assume that the Holy Spirit has not given you the interpretation of tongues. And next time you come together, don't bother trying. Speak in tongues. Do it at home in private. As you pray to your heavenly father, he even goes on to say, if you're doing that in your congregational meetings and somebody comes through the door and sees you're doing that, they're going to think you're out of your mind and they're going to leave. How, how is it that that's written in the scripture to conduct yourself this way? And the church does not do that. 
remarkable. So many very specific things laid out for the church, and yet the church just chucks it over their shoulder and goes off and does what they want, just like the Old Testament prophets said they would do, right? Throw it over their shoulder and go do what they want to do. We need to govern ourselves according to the Word of God. And I'll be very clear, again, I endorse speaking in tongues, prophecy, uh, you know, the, the gifts of the Spirit. I myself pray in tongues. I guarantee no one in this room has ever seen me pray in tongues. Why? Because we haven't had interpretation of it. I, I find no use for it here in this congregation. There may come a day where it is. You know, we go into great explanations about that. I'll, I'll give a quick explanation about this. You know, rhetorical questions. Who is your biggest enemy spiritually? You are. Right? You wake up every morning like Gail Irwin said, look in the mirror and understand. There's my enemy. Right? You are your biggest enemy. And what about you is your biggest enemy? Your flesh. Right? The desires of your flesh. That's your biggest enemy. What is speaking in tongues? It is the spirit... Speaking to God. So it's a language you do not understand. It is a foreign language. It may be a language of angel, angels. It may be a language of men, according to the scriptures. But if my spirit is praying to the Heavenly Father in a language I do not understand, then my flesh is not involved. The biggest enemy I have doesn't get to be part of the, the communication between the child of God in me and my heavenly father. So I insist that what's going on is encrypted communication between the spirit and headquarters. You know what I'm saying? That we would be strengthened in the inner man. So, you know, for any of us that have just always thrown the baby out with the bathwater, okay, Explanation of that uh, illustration. Uh, so water was so rare as far as having to gather it by hand and put it in, into the thing and boil it all that, that they would do a thing where uh, you would start with the head of the household and he would have his bath. And then usually the mother would have her bath and the children have their baths. And, you know, think about bathing that infant in the everything that remains as you've gone along through. That was much cleaner than not taking a bath, you know, once a month. But the point is it gets pretty murky. And you could lose the baby in there and throw the baby out with the bathwater. Why did I just explain all that? Why? Because the church has made the living water murky. They have soiled it up. They have made it a thing that people don't want anything to do with. And as a result, the child of God is being deprived of something that it desperately needs. The church needs the Holy Spirit. Today, the church needs the Holy Spirit, perhaps now more than ever. Look at the world around you. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Don't harden your hearts to the Holy Spirit. Oh, you know, maybe you were reading this and thinking like, yeah, no, I want to be obedient to God. I want to. Yeah, well, what we're talking about is conquering your flesh, isn't it? We're talking about, you know, stopping the sin and, and no longer obeying the appetites of our flesh. Well, if we're not going to submit to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if we're not going to cross the Jordan River and experience whatever the Lord is calling us to do, maybe the very thing the Lord is calling you to do is speak in tongues. Right? Because you've stood on this side of the Jordan and say, well, if I mean, if he asked me anything else, I would do it. But I've seen that nonsense and I don't want anything to do with it. It's a bunch of weirdness and I'm not going to participate. So you've stayed in that place. And, and oh, I just, I can't, and I still have this, and this habitual sin won't go away. And why can't I conquer this? And what? Maybe you need to take the plunge. Maybe you need to cross over. Maybe you need to get alone with the Lord and just say, I've been shallow. I've <laughs> been wading around ankle deep in this Jordan. I'm scared. To cross over. I'm scared to have that experience with you. Harden your heart in the day of rebellion, right? For fear of the ill reports 
that have come from the body of Christ. Think about that, right? It was the congregation of Israel that came back and said, can't do it. We're, we're, we're going to be defeated. We cannot. There's giants over there. I have sat in sermons where pastors have said, you should not ever try to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You could end up being demon-possessed. You know, and in fact, some of them have said, if you speak in tongues, that's a sign that you're demon-possessed. You know, I think it was John MacArthur. You'll have to correct me on this. You can do your research. Uh, you know, some of you might go online right now, but uh, that wrote the book Strange Fire. And he openly criticized Calvary Chapel and Chuck Smith in that for and being Pentecostal, endorsing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The church needs, you know, we do not need anybody swinging from the chandeliers and rolling around on the floor and acting foolish. There's been enough of that through church history. We definitely need a church that is filled with the power of God. Right? Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem until you have received the dudamis in order to be my witnesses. The power, and it was actually the dynamite, dudamis, dynamite power, the explosive power of, of the Holy Spirit, stay until Jerusalem, in Jerusalem until you've received the dudamis in order to be my witnesses, in order to be my martyrs, in fact, is what he said. To die, what? Die to yourself daily. Take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. Then what do we see happen? They're all gathered together in fear, hiding together in the upper room when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Mighty rushing wind, flames of fire seen above their heads. And they step out in the streets. And let's be clear, they begin to speak in foreign languages. They're not just babbling, right? Tongues, dialecta is the word that is used. They were speaking in different languages, right? They weren't just saying, you know, one word over and over, sounding like a bunch of madmen. The men who were in the street who were gathered from all over the Mediterranean region, across the top of Africa and all the way back to Europe, had come to Jerusalem, right, for Pentecost, and they're there to worship the Lord. And together, they're gathered together by the sound they hear, and they hear all of these men speaking what? The wondrous works of God. They're praising God in foreign language, and everybody goes, what is this? And Peter explains, it's number one, the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he, too, explains Jesus as their Messiah. He preaches the gospel to them. They're all convicted and converted. 3,000 people come to know the Lord that day. The church explodes into existence. Dynamite power, the church explodes into existence. And, and, and think about this, the timing. You don't want to talk about demographics and marketing. Think, think about how the Lord did this, right? He draws them to Jerusalem every year, over and over, right? Hundreds and hundreds of years. They've been coming to Jerusalem for Passover. And now he sends the Holy Spirit into that moment, and the church explodes. And what do they do? They return to all of their homes and spread the gospel all over that Mediterranean, all over the world is what they do. We we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our personal lives, in our church, in our community. I've said this over and over again. People do not get this. 3.8 million visitors come every single year to Acadia National Park. That's more people come here than go to Disneyland every year. And they are from all over the world. We have a prime opportunity to go and share the gospel with them. Church, let the Lord speak to your heart and get out in the world and open your mouth. You know, the, the, the Lord, the Lord, the devil would love us all to get all completely caught up in our political way of thinking and our right wing, you know, right to do whatever and to get into arguments and do nothing about building the kingdom 
Were you not, I mean, let's get simple. Were you not delivered from the bondage you were in? Since you went through that baptism, like the Red Sea, right? Out of the slavery to your sin, since you were delivered out of that, and right, we've been dying to our flesh all of these years. Let us be baptized in the Spirit and cross the Jordan and have victory in Christ. Claim his kingdom for our king. Let's not harden our hearts. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice. It's interesting how the psalmist puts this today because the today, he's even going to say it here later, you know, while it's called today, isn't every day called today? And that's the point. There's a humoristic poetry in it. You know, as long as it's called today, you know, well, does that mean today? Is it called today today? Yes, it is. Well, then today is today. Today is the day. Oh, well, that was, you know, thousands of years ago. That, that, that was a long, it was the ancient world. It was Peter. It was David. It was long. No, no, no. It's still called today, isn't it? Right? So it's today. As long as it's called today. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. None of us wants to be thought of as rebelling against God. Right? We might even have that American way of thinking like, you know, I'm a rebel. You know, I just... But certainly no one would say to you, do you rebel against God? And you would proudly say, yes, I do. <laughs> that would be absurd. None of us wants to be thought of that way. So as long as it's called today, then we do not harden our hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Looking for rest? Need peace? Just can't seem to find that missing piece of the puzzle? Why the anxiety? Why the worry? Why the overwhelm? Well, the answer is that you haven't found the peace. Right? There's a uh, great preacher. Uh, he not a huge church, not wildly uh, popular, but Peter Will is in Germany, actually, in part of Calvary Chapel and the work that's going on over there. But uh, Peter Will said, uh, when you find Jesus, you find the rest. And you can just dwell on that for a little while. You know, what, what else were you looking for? Right? You thought you needed... Something else, the rest, you know, yeah, I got Jesus, but I need to find the rest. <laughs> all the other stuff, all the other pieces. No, nope. no, if you find Jesus, you will find the rest. You'll find the peace. That's that's where it is at. And, and, and the beautiful thing is, is God designed it that way, that as long as you don't have the peace, then you need to keep searching. That That's the telltale sign that, you, you need to find Jesus still. That you haven't dialed in to the place you need to be. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Why? Harden their heart, always rebellious, not following after him. Verse 12, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now this is, again, it has application to the Christian sense of things, but it's the idea of the Jew returning to the law, going back to the priesthood of Aaron, uh, you know, once again offering sacrifices, going back, to the, you're going to depart from the Lord and go back to those things, you know, be cautioned about that type of behavior. And it certainly has Christian application as well as Hebrew application. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today. There it is again. 
Okay. How long do you need to exhort me, encourage me? As long as it's called today. How long do I need to encourage you? You know, when, when do I get to stop? Well, it's, when there comes a point where it's not called today. And let's be clear. There's a day where that phraseology and terminology will disappear. Because we're going to enter into eternity. There, there will be no night. There will be no sleep. There will be no tomorrow. It will just be the continuous now. right? All things will be the present to us, the same as they are God. We will enter into that timelessness with him. So as long as we're on planet Earth, as long as the sun rises and the sun sets and we have this present day struggle, then we need to encourage one another in this process. So exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There is a very powerful ministry of prophecy that you can have when the Holy Spirit speaks to you and tells you to speak to someone and encourage them. You are speaking on behalf of God in that case. Especially if you will speak the word of God as encouragement to them. You know, the song service ends and the Lord has laid that person across the room on your heart and said to you, go share this verse with them. And we don't. I would say to you, stop doing that. You're at home and so-and-so suddenly springs to mind and you could call them and just share that verse you read this morning with them, but you don't. Encourage one another daily, daily. We need to reach out. We need to have this continuous communication, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. Sin is so deceptive. You, you introduce sin into your life, and it will convince you of things that are absolutely untrue. I, I have sat with people, even recently, who have told me this and that is going on in my life, and this terrible thing is definitely going to happen. Uh, why do you think that terrible thing is going to happen? I just know that it is. How do you know that it is? I just, I'm convinced internally that it is. And it goes both directions. They're, they're headed off into some terrible thing. They're going to destroy their family, and they're convinced. My leaving my family is going to be good. No, it's not. It's going to be really terrible. You know, the deceitfulness of sin is convincing you of things that are not true. My wife hates me. I just spoke to her and she said she doesn't. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, this is it. This is the end. The, the deceitfulness, the deception. You know, I'm going to be able to get away with this. I'll do that. Everyone else that has done this sinful thing has gotten busted and destroyed their life, but I'm not going to. Yes, you are. You're going to. You're going to destroy your life for that sin. Sin is so deceitful. You know, imagine that. If I told you, if you ate, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, cranberries, <laughs> you would lose your mind and think things that were not true. You'd stop eating cranberries. Sin is this way. You introduce it to your life and it, it turns things into a lie. It makes you think things that are not true. It's reminding we've all sat back and seen somebody blow their life off and you know and thought, how, how in the world could they have done that? Like, why did they make that decision and destroy themselves that way? You know, and then you hear the details and you're like, it's even more absurd. I can't I cannot believe that they made that decision. It's because of the deception. You introduce sin, it'll convince you of all kinds of things that are untrue. Don't harden your heart through the deceitfulness of sin. That means you've got to stay away from sin. For we have 
become partakers of Christ, the anointed one, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Don't depart from this faith. I, uh, I was going to say I've only known one person who has walked away from their faith that blatantly, but I don't know, maybe more. I, I definitely know of one. A close friend of mine years ago out in Hillary name, uh, you know, remained nameless. But, I mean, a guy who had memorized big sections of the Bible, you talk to him and, you know, quote a verse from, uh, you know, First Corinthians, and he could quote all the verses, the remainder of the chapter, tell you the context, just like really, really studied, so proficient at the Word of God, always active in church. When I, when I first met him, he was hitchhiking. Uh, I, I was going to say 100 miles. I'm pretty sure it was close to 100 miles to come stay at my house on the weekends and attend church with us. Committed to a level you can't believe. Left the state, came back, and I'm, I'm done with Christianity. I'm done with God. Ha- had an experience while he was away that caused him to just throw away his faith completely. And to this day, nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do. I continue to pray for him. Right? Salvation in our faith comes from remaining, abiding, staying. John said of the false teachers, they went out from us because they never were of us. Had they been of us, they never would have departed from us. Right, the, the departure shows you where the heart really is. Look, you may falter, you may fail, you may scream and cry, and you know have a fit along the way and feel faithless. If you hold on to Christ, right? if you hold on to Christ to the end, you win. You win. Right? Why? Because Christ is the victor, not you. That's the beautiful thing. Christ is the victor. You just have to hold on to him. Just let him drag you across the finish line. Just don't let go of that sneaker. You know what I'm saying? Just that sandal. Let him let him take you home in the process. It's, it's, a, it's an unfortunate thing to see people who have, in fact, abandoned their faith. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having uh, heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? People, people have this opinion like, Oh, if I could just see something supernatural. You know, I, if, I, if I could just see someone raised from the dead. You know, if I, if I could just see, you know, someone walk on water. If I could just see a miracle. These people witnessed the entire Red Sea split, move out of the way, and they walked across on dry ground. Dry ground. Right? The false teachers that insist, no, no, no. It wasn't the Red Sea. It was the Reed Sea. That's on the far end of the Red Sea. It's this marshy area. You know, I mean, and when the wind blows, you know, that 18 inches or so of water sometimes shallows right out to like six inches. So, you know, they walk through. Look, it takes more faith to believe that the entire Egyptian army drowned in six inches of water than it does that God split that sea and they walked through on dry land. They saw that. It says that the waters congealed, right? You've seen things congeal. Mom's jello congeals. You know there were little kids that were just like walking along, dragging their finger through you know, and everybody get you know you're gonna break it. That's just you know. <laughs> you know. How could you not? How could you not have? 
And here's the thing. They saw that. They experienced that and yet rebelled. Rebelled. I could shake my head and speak ill of them, but I've seen the miraculous work of the Lord in my life and turned right around and fallen into sin myself. Seeing the miraculous does not provide us with what is necessary for obedience. Right? That's the softness of heart and the responsiveness to the Holy Spirit that is necessary. That's, that's what's necessary to accomplish the obedience. You know, the beautiful thing is, if you've been completely rebellious and you haven't, Follow the Lord in obedience. You can change all of that right now. Because it's called today. Yesterday is, well, yesterday. Today is today. So we can respond to the Lord properly. You know, have you wandered in the wilderness of sin long enough that your flesh has died? And now you can live that life in the spirit, in the spirit, in obedient response to his leading, consider what he might be saying. Indeed, having heard who would possibly rebel, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned? Right? He he's making direct application. You know, saw miracles, rebelled. What was what was the wrath? From sin, you know, they've got to be able to just transpose that right onto themselves and understand what the Holy Spirit is saying. Whose corpses fell in the wilderness? I think your King James Version says carcasses fell in the wilderness. It's graphic any way that you want to depict it there. And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief resulting in disobedience. Listen, you know, spiritual laws um, are, the, the, you know, we live in a culture that acts like whatever your opinion is, that's your truth. And that's completely false. You, you may think something that's completely untrue. And just because you hold to that insistently, it doesn't convert truth into your belief system. I'm not, I'm not just giving us a lesson in relativism and postmodern thinking here. This equation works forwards and backwards. If we struggle in sin, we do not believe. If you believe, you will stop struggling in sin. If, if you are a follower of Christ, obedience has to be in place. This is what not only the author of Hebrews, but all of the epistles, and most pointedly James says about faith must be accompanied with works. If, if they're not, if, you're, if your faith doesn't have works, then your faith is dead. It's, it's a useless thing. He even goes as far, doesn't he, to say, oh, you believe there's one God? Good for you. I'm paraphrasing. So don't the devils. The devils believe there is one God and they tremble. Believing in your mind is not sufficient. It must be believing and obeying. If obeying is not accompanied with it, then you've got to question your belief system. You got to look at yourself and say, "How sincere am I in my belief?" I should remember the acrobat's name, but turn of the, I was going to say turn of the century, but 1900s. <laughs> he uh, stretched a cable across Niagara Falls and uh, repeatedly did performances, walking the distance from America to Canada and back. Uh, he even uh, at one point had a wheelbarrow that he uh, put items in and would carry them across. And uh, when he came, he turned on the cable and came back with the wheelbarrow and asked the crowd if they thought 
that he could make it all the way across with the wheelbarrow. And they cheered and said, absolutely, we know that you can do it. And he said, great, now who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? Because right? we'll say, I believe, wholeheartedly. And then God says, so get in the wheelbarrow. Now take the steps that I'm asking you to take. It, it needs be, right? Because if, if belief is not accompanied with obedience, then we need question our belief. Don't, don't walk away downhearted. Don't walk away discouraged, right? Be encouraged while it is today. Our job is to encourage one another. Be encouraged that the Holy Spirit is at our disposal. We have the opportunity to see these victories in our lives. Let the Lord lead you into victory. Amen? Amen. So that's uh, chapter 3. We'll pick up with chapter 4 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. You might need to adjust that shot if I stand up, Casey. Unless you want to clip me off at the nose. I don't know how that works. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you again for your love. And we ask that you would fill us with the strength of your Holy Spirit. That we would be obedient to you. That we would see your kingdom come and your will be done in us and through us. Use us as your servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.